Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, it's Easley Work Repeat. I'm Bruce Easley. It's a podcast about making work better. Now, my perspective throughout the, the last 18 months has been to try to see what other people in other sectors are saying and what opinions they're forming. And I've been really interested in the perspectives of the commercial real estate sector. Now, it's worth saying in commercial real estate, that's broadly people who own property for, for as a business. And uh, in, in commercial real estate, there's been a lot of people who've been trying to be cheerleaders for us going back to the office. You know, they've either been lobbying politicians or they've been uh, they've been trying to get newspapers to to sort of print articles saying we need to get back to the office. And you know, you've seen a lot of big business interests trying to suggest that the office needs to be we we need to strongly encourage people to work, return to the office. However, in the commercial property sector, there are some visionaries. And there are, so last year we spoke to Anthony Slumbers, and I'd strongly recommend anyone check out that podcast or go and uh, go and read any of Anthony's stuff. I've linked to it in the show notes on the newsletter. I've shared links to the Work Bold podcast by Caleb Parker, and I really love that. So it always comes out on a Sunday and gives you a perspective of what people who run offices are thinking about the, the future of work and. It just gets you out of like the work culture perspective. It gets you out of the business school perspective, trying to understand where we're going next with work. Now, along the last 18 months, I've read several really stimulating pieces by Richard Pickering from Cushman and Wakefield. Cushman and Wakefield are one of the biggest commercial real estate service companies in the in the world. So their job is not necessarily to own property, but to advise and manage uh, property for, for their clients. And his perspective, Richard's perspective as the chief strategy officer, is to try and work out where the heck we're going, what the office of the future is going to look like, how much demand will there be for offices. And I've seen Richard's posts and they've been really stimulating, actually extending way beyond the world of commercial real estate, understanding maybe the societal, the governmental impact of some of the things we're looking at. I saw Richard speaking at an event. I scurried over and chatted to him and I said, would you come on the podcast? Uh, About a month later, I've managed to get him here. What you're going to get from this discussion today with Richard Pickering, I think is a really visionary perspective of where commercial real estate is going, how this is going to have an impact for cities. So, you know, one of the things that Richard talks about along the way is will cities, some cities set about thinking we're going to give 
Um, we're going to give uh, public transport for free because it makes it makes them more appealing. Or you know, firms increasingly might consider uh, treating the commute time as part of the working day. All of the sort of things that would drive the Daily Mail crazy, but actually just help us be more open-minded about how we can create productive versions of work in the future. Really interesting, stimulating discussion. Look, things we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about how we've just started understanding different modalities at work. I think, you know, it's becoming increasingly evident to us that creative work is probably best done face-to-face at the moment, certainly with the employees that we've currently got, and that, you know, we we can actually get a lot of our productive work done at home. Um, we, we're we going to see cities become younger. Uh, we're going to see really sort of a, a split. The firms that just embrace change now and recognize that they need to train managers to work in a different way are going to very strongly differentiate themselves from the firms who are really just trying to make sense of this and, you know, they've got a sort of survival instinct. It's a brilliant discussion. Like I say, for a long time, I've thought Richard's one of the clearest thinking people in commercial real estate. So I was delighted to get a hold of him. So uh, this is a discussion with Richard Pickering, Chief Strategy Officer at Cushman and Wakefield. A lot of the things that Richard talks about and we talk about in the conversation, I've linked to in the show notes. So if anything that you're thinking, oh, that sounds interesting, if you just go to the notes part of the podcaster app and click on that, you'll see the, the notes there. While you're there, you can also sign up for my newsletter, which goes out every couple of weeks and gives you a digest of the latest stuff that's happening in terms of the evolution of work and workplace culture. When the latest report that Richard talks about, the city's report comes out, I'll make sure I link to that on the newsletter as well. So here he is. Here's my discussion with Richard Pickering. Thank you so much for joining me, Richard. I wonder if you could kick us off by just introducing who you are and, and what you do. Yeah, absolutely. It's great great to be here, Bruce. Thanks for inviting me. I am Chief Strategy Officer for the UK business of Cushman and Wakefield. That's a, a big global uh, real estate services firm. And I, I do three things there. I, I help uh, our, our chief exec in the UK look after our company strategy. I look after our digitization and data science portfolios. And then the, the fun bit of what I do is trying to think about the future um, of real estate. And uh, that's the kind of topic on which we, we connected recently. That's right. Because I read a few of your blog posts, sort of postings over the course of the the last 18 months. And then I was fortunate enough to meet you um, just a few weeks ago and, you know, continued the discussion there. So t- tell me what's helped form your perspective. Is it, I'm, I'm guessing from the, the conversation that you and I had, it's it's rooted very strongly in the research of what people, what office users, what consumers, what people are, are saying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've got quite a, a sort of varied background. I think I started life as a, a lawyer. I've done bits of economics. I'm really passionate about uh, psychology, urbanism, technology. And, and I've kind of figured out that all of these things come together when you think about how real estate of the future is going to be used, how the market's going to work together, um, and and all the sort of onward considerations that, that come from that. So I have obviously the benefit of being able to stand on top of our research platform at Cushman's, but um, just the day-to-day kind of focus on on things outside of the real estate space is increasingly, I think, what really drives uh, the knowledge of how things are going to shape up in in the future. And uh, certainly it's helped me for my perspectives anyway. Because when I saw you talking, I guess one of the things you said was that, you know, probably this is hard for people within commercial real estate to hear, but we've definitely renegotiated our relationship with the office. And 
how do you see that playing out? So, so you say people are expecting to work from home more, and is that in the evidence that you've gathered? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a relatively uncontentious statement now, Bruce. I think it's quite clear that we have reached uh, a new sort of normal for how people are going to not just work, actually, but do other things uh, in their lives as well. Um, and I think that most businesses out there have kind of started to, to channel down some form of hybrid working. I think those that find themselves at the sort of polar ends of the future of work, either kind of wholly virtual or five days a week in the office, will find themselves in increasingly small number in the future. And, and the kind of the, the bulk of the market will find themselves in that continuum in, in the middle. I think it's very different depending on your job role or your industry. Um, your, even your business, your business culture, there's a lot of variation within that. Certainly stage of life differences we're starting to see come through quite clearly in the data. It would be very easy to be binary about the future of work and the future of offices. And I, and I think that the future of work and, and offices is far from binary. In fact, I think there's, there's increasing sort of continuum of how we will work in the future. And I think that's a great thing for employees as they find new ways to add productivity to their businesses. Um, and look, the office market needs to respond to that. But but equally, I, I think it would be remiss of me not to point out that a lot of that was going on before the last two years. And very few people actually worked 100% of their time in the office uh, anyway. So the shift might not be quite as radical as it initially presents itself. But I, I think it's a positive shift. And I think that offices will need to respond to that. Broadly, what we're saying, most workers want to spend at least a couple of days at home. Is that right? What 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 are you seeing there? Yeah, I think I mean I think that's an accurate statement. Most workers want to spend a couple of days a week at home. Not all workers. Um, you know, some of my colleagues, for instance, you know, thrive off the day-to-day personal connections at work. But you know, that's quite a feature of our industry. But most workers, says the data, would like to spend a couple of days a week not working in an office, and that might be at home, or it might be on client sites, or it might be out working from coffee shops, or just any way that they would flexibly want to work in the future. I think there is a, a nuanced picture emerging, and I think most well, most of the surveys that I've uh, seen on this subject, including some of our own, our own work, suggest that the leaders of businesses tend to be more pro-working in the office, more days per week, whereas that sort of middle group of people who are most probably enfranchised by home working, maybe they've got long commutes, young families, etc., are, are probably more realising the benefits of a, of a more flexible workplace. And I think there's an interesting juxtaposition of perspectives there now, which is going to flow out and start to kind of embody itself over the next few years, which is this kind of, I guess, difference of opinion, which is emerging between different employees and maybe the bosses of businesses and their teams about how they would like them to work. And it is becoming a bit of a, you know, an interesting room to watch to see who's going to be the the ultimate winners or, or how, how the average is going to manifest itself. I don't think we'll see the answer to that for a, a few years yet. And that's why everyone's so focused on whatever data we can get now that might be an early indicator of where this might be going. So when you're seeing commercial real estate partners, people who are sort of, um, I guess you'd call them clients or, you know, people who are sort of renting space, are they thinking about optimizing that space the, the the one thing that we i guess casually knew before even people who weren't in the, the sector knew that sort of desk occupancy was always famously relatively low you know there was a degree of redundancy in the space that people had so so broadly firms could have more people in their space 
to, to maximise the use of it. That's how I understood it. So, so do correct me on any of that. But now a firm saying, okay, well, look, if our workers want to be at home two days a week, could we, should we be thinking of maximising the benefit of the space by maybe having some workers in on Mondays and Fridays and other, others on other days? Are firms getting into the detail of that already or is it still at the experimentation stage? I think it's somewhere in between the two, Bruce. I think, I mean, I think everyone's sort of looking at each other to try and figure out what the uh, the general trend is going to be and what's going to be acceptable to work. As you can't, I don't think in this new world, put forward a proposition to your workers that's radically different from that of your competitors. Otherwise, you you might find yourself at a disadvantage in terms of talent attraction and retention. Um, I think you know. I think you're right in saying that the big trend over the last sort of ten years has been to drive increased density out of space and increase utilization out of space. That's very much a, a CFO type agenda to want to do that in any kind of area of cost within within your business. I think companies now find themselves with a slightly different uh, perspective. I mean, it has been changing the last couple of years. You know, uh, most surveys suggest that in the in the in maybe just before pandemic, actually, the shift of emphasis went more towards talent attraction and retention than to just purely driving cost efficiencies out of space. I think you know, now got to consider quite an interesting dynamic, which is that on the face of it, you know, if you were having you know seventy percent utilization before, you've now got much less than that. What are you gonna What are you gonna do with that? There'll be some people who look to downsize that space, almost certainly. Others will say we don't have a lease expire, a lease event maybe for a few years yet. So what are we going to do in the meantime? And I think a lot of people will use the time that they've got. Uh, up until the next lease event to consider what works for them and for their and for their business and i th- i think almost certainly we won't see the pressure on density um increase that we've seen in 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 previous years i think uh, and again a good thing for the employee i think is that we will start to see more generous spatial allowances on a per head basis with probably a greater allocation to non allocated uh, spacing within an office, the kind of space that helps businesses collaborate and, uh, and and work with each other, and probably also gives a little bit more space that might um, you know alleviate, alleviate those people who are still kind of concerned around social distancing's concerns around their their use of the space in the office. And, and generally, I think this is this feels like a good thing for the employee value proposition going forward. So, is this reflecting that we're starting to understand the modalities, the modes of working far better, and almost aspects of our job which are about creation we are focused on doing those things face to face and then aspects of our job which are about execution or i think probably the routine aspects we're going to be more comfortable with those being done remotely is that thinking about modalities an important consideration i mean i mean look, i i i certainly think that that's the case and i certainly hope that that's the way that this will um flow through you know it makes no sense being around lots of people being noisy and distracting you when you want to get a report done and equally you you know a lot of the evidence suggests that you're not people do not find the the uh remote collaboration environment as optimum as the as the in-person collaboration environment yeah. as various various studies which point point to the benefits of, of that um even you know across the spectrum that is not just particular age groups so I, I would really hope we end up with the kind of world that you're sort of envisaging there bruce which is that um people will use real estate for for more um creative and enab- and, and higher value order tasks i think we've got to be clear that that's going to require a lot of planning 
and a lot of thought around that. You know, you, you, mm. it's very difficult to say this is my creative day, so I'm going to be in the office or cut my day for for meetings, and I'm only going to I'm going to be at home the, on the other days. It requires you to have no other stakeholders who control your time, like clients or your colleagues who might have chosen a different day. And I guess you you sort of point to it in, your, in one of your questions earlier is that. Most businesses right now are seeing a, a midweek peak in occupancy. So they're seeing kind of fairly limited uptake of floor space or utilization, should I say, of floor space on Monday and Friday. And you get the, this sort of peak midweek, which is quite a difficult one to figure out, actually. I, I think, you know, if, again, if you were a CFO, you'd be saying this doesn't work because, mm. you know, we can't rationalize any space because, you know, you're limited by your peak requirement. And, and then you've got probably other people like, people who are maybe the CEO who are going to say, well, actually, I want all of my people to be in together collaborating. So not less, less of a problem that they aren't in on Friday or whatever. I think there is a bit of a problem on the days where people want to collaborate with other people and the other people aren't there. And getting critical mass on those days is going to be important going forward. So I, I think to, to, to summarize on, on the question you've asked, I think I really, really hope that we start to use real estate for different tasks than our home office. But I think there's a lot of work required to get us to a place where that's going to be a functioning reality. You've mentioned a couple of things along the way. I guess one of the things is that you said managers are more keen to have workers in the office more. And I guess to some extent, there's a sort of benefit in them undermining the power of remote working and suggesting that actually, look, we want people in all the time. But there's almost, there seems to be this dividend that better organized companies will be able to take advantage of of what good management of good leadership is going to liberate from them so effectively they will use their real estate more they'll use the productivity of their workers more they probably won't be so beset with as many resignations because companies based on what we've seen so far companies that are demanding workers back in the office 5 days a week will probably be less desirable places to work. And all of this points to a degree more enlightened management and a degree more enlightened leadership. Effectively, it seems to me that all of the things that you've articulated there, actually, if firms can elevate themselves into this trusting, more enlightened, but more intentional style of management, there's a massive upside for those organisations. Is that right? Is that some of the parts adding these jigsaw pieces together? I think you hit the nail on the head with the word intentioned. I think that, I mean, that's the, the big thing now, isn't it? Because I think all of our, you know, if you accept that hybrid working is going to be the feature of the kind of the standard mode, mode of work of the future, um, that's not something that most managers have had to deal with so far. You know, a lot of them have had to deal with, you know, someone working at home on a Friday and they've just hacked around that. It's not really a problem. But if you're now in a genuinely hybrid environment, you need to be much more focused on, you know, including people who are in the room, outside the room, uh, with kind of equal measure. I think you're right. I think some some managers who feel uncomfortable about the change that's being proposed, their seat of, of power and control being diminished in some way, will actively undermine uh, home working and, and hybrid working. And I think other, I don't think there'll be a big percentage, but there will be some people like that. And I think uh, in the middle, I think there'll be just there's a big gulf in management skills of of uh, trying to do things, let's face it, in a way that none of us have really done on this scale before. We're all sort of figuring out how to be good managers uh, in this 
in this in this new world. And I think you're right. I think the the skills and expectation on our managers will increase. Um, and again, I think this is a, a positive call to action to change within within any workplace that uh, people are more deliberate and, as you say, intentioned about the way that they go about their management of people. It seems to me when I look at your space and I find like the commercial real estate space so fascinating because it's stratified, isn't it? There are some really premium offerings and it's, there's no doubt to me that going forwards, a lot of firms are going to hold the importance of their head office, the importance of their offices to be even more important than ever before. Leesman, the research company, describe, I think in their most recent report, they say, you know, it's not impossible to imagine for offices that are half the size but twice the experience. And no doubt from a commercial real estate point of view, having something that really is an embodiment of your company, having something that really is a statement about what, what your company is, is not going to be less important. It's going to be it's going to be more important. This is almost like a showroom par excellence, like the Apple store, to me at least. You know, these things these things are going to matter more. Um, one of the things we've seen from some of the d- developing forms is the, the idea that, you know, property as a service, space as a service, that, that to some extent, one of the things that you've mentioned along the way there is that firms might have different needs of space than they pre- previously did. And, you know, I saw one business talking about their their experiment they're trying at the moment is Wednesday plus one. And, you know, so they're having everyone in the office on Wednesday and then they don't want the office to be deserted, so pick another day. But it's not impossible to imagine, well, you know, Wednesday, they might need a much bigger footprint. And actually, you know, and maybe they'll end up, because it'll be cheaper, it's Friday plus one or it's Monday plus one. Because, But do you think the commercial real estate will start responding, market will, will start responding to this and start saying, okay, well, we've... In this building, we've got some event space that you can expand into, or we've got some um, some space that will be yours, but on certain days. Do, do you see that level of demand fulfillment arising in the in the space, or what's your perspective on how those needs will be serviced? Well, I mean, all markets try and find efficiencies, don't they, over time, and ways to sort of mm. g- drive greater utilization from products and, and in real estate obviously our product is 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 offices i mean i guess you point to the uh, kind of uh, you know a challenge for occupiers there in that if it's wednesday plus one then you're at 100 percent of your former space utilization uh, if you go it alone um sorry 100 of your space requirement if you go it alone because you can't you know and, and you're using it very inefficiently on some days and very efficiently on other days um I think, I mean, what you what you describe there requires a partnership between businesses. I think, and I think we will see that on the edges, Bruce. I don't think it will be mainstream in the next few years. Right. But I, I, you know, I think, you know, let's say, let's say, you know, you and I uh, were in kind of cooperative businesses, and we say, well, look, you be the Wednesday and I be the Friday. Then we could probably work, make something work out of that. I don't think it will be the real estate companies that. That do that um, in, in for, right. for the main part. I think I think that that will be corporate cooperation and, and collaboration that will enable right. that. Um, you know, at the at the other end of the spectrum, the very kind of smaller end of the spectrum in terms of you know spatial suites, you know, co working, small businesses. Yeah, yeah, maybe that might be you know, the, it, that might allow the market to clear more effectively. But I think the the challenge is at the moment that humans seem to say, uh, given a choice, I'll be Wednesday, Tuesday, Thursday probably not friday maybe a bit of monday um and if everybody says that 
then someone's not going to get their way and that's going to be the fly in the ointment mm. of that. Um, mm. but, I mean, to, to the point you were making earlier, your previous point, um, look, I mean, if we see a level of, of, of demand fall off, I don't think it will be in the order that you, you were kind of pointing to there. But if we do see a level of, of demand fall off, I think that that will be quite targeted uh, in the way that you've just described, actually, which is that there's a lot of fairly awful offices out there that might now fall below the bar of what some corporates are looking for. And I think those offices are going to have to find new uses and new raisons d'etre. Whereas the best offices, I think, will uh, retain an element of resilience to these kind of trends because they, uh, number one, supply was very low in that kind of end of the the stock segment in any way. but there's a whole wave of other factors coming over our industry as well that are changing things, things like um, sustainability requirements, things like you, you pointed to the service mix you would expect, maybe more specific requirements about location. Uh, and so I think what we're going to see is a relatively ring fence category of very prime stock that will retain its 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 value and 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 towards the kind of tertiary end of the market. I think that's where um, we're going to need to be more creative about what the future of those places ends up being. Because it's really interesting, isn't it? If you think about these things holistically, if if you do end up concluding that probably irrespective of where the number ends up, we're probably agreed on the need for commercial real estate is lower and that the demand for premium real estate is probably the same, maybe higher, because some of these firms that had you know, large footprints out of town might say, actually, we're just going to get something that's a bit more of a statement about who we are, but it's in a premium you know, campus location or whatever, whatever they choose to be. But the aggregation of those two trends is the demand for overall real estate is lower. Commercial real estate is lower. Simultaneously, we've got this societal issue that there's a massive shortage of housing. Now, one of the things that people in commercial real estate tell me is that it's not easy to convert commercial real estate into, into housing. So, you know, without governmental involvement, that maybe they buy properties and and they sort of invent that they um, they build something else there. But holistically, you'd say, okay, well, this this challenge to the commercial real estate market isn't necessarily a disaster societally if we're nimble and agile and we we sort of reinvent what we're doing. What's your perspective on that? Firstly, do you see this in aggregate that that those things are true that the commercial real estate demand will go down? What what's your overall take on those things? Well, I think there's there's probably a you know what the the lawyers would call a Soteris paribus position here. I it, all all of the things being equal because all of the things are probably not equal. We're still seeing population yeah. growth come through job job growth coming through which is going to kind of move things up a level organically anyway um, but I think pro- probably the way I would phrase it is relative to its former trajectory then some of the the steam will be taken out of the, the commercial um, sector at the same point we've got an unsatiated housing market where as you say you know maybe, maybe there's an opportunity there now and I guess you know, if you think about where and how this kind of trend is going to point itself you know the offices that are well-specified prime in, in the middle of a, a vibrant commercial locations are probably going to fit in your former group of you know strong, strengthened areas that will satisfy prime demand. And the ones that will fall off are probably on the edge of centre, those kind of transition zones in our cities where probably housing is a more acceptable alternative use anyway. 
And, and look, the government has become more more permissive in terms of its policies on uh, commercial to residential development in recent years. And there's also uh, other forms of, of use coming through, such as healthcare or life sciences and other uses, which, again, we don't have the stock for at the moment. So, yeah, uh, as with any period of change in life, we're going to get some you know, it's like rebalancing probably of, of what our buildings and our real estate is used for in the future. And it's going to be, of course, hopefully aligned to the future needs rather than ones that existed historically. So uh, we've got to get on and, and deliver it, I guess, is the, yeah. <laughs> is, the, is the key thing. What I found so compelling when I saw you talk was that you spoke about thinking about where these changes take us in two, three, five years, how cities might want to attract people or, you know, buy I think one of the things you mentioned was, you know, some cities might offer free public transport or, you know, or employers might um, encourage pe- workers to come into the office by absorbing the commute in in working time. And I'd love to just hear, you know, how you see those things and, and what do they look like? Well, I think you've got to go back to the kind of first discussion we're having, I think, which is, you know, why, you know, why and who doesn't want to work in the office? Um, and... I've heard very few people say that they prefer to work in their, you know, well, very few people have a home office, right? Let's get that that one clear. So most people are using their sitting room or their their dining room or, their, you know, some shed or something like that to do their, their working at home at the moment. Um, very few people say that that is better than a good office, and I would completely agree with them. But what they don't like is having to find their way to the office in the morning and find their way back in the evening. I think particularly in our big cities like London, New York, et cetera, where there are um, you know, quite long commutes that have been caused by city expansion and by lack of infrastructure investment, um, people do not like wasting time. And I think we can all get behind that as a, as a concept. So um, I think my, well, my position, as, as, I was, as I was putting when, when we were at the kind of event you were talking about there, Bruce, was... I think that if you want people in your offices, you need to think about why they don't want to be in them and, and then find ways to unpick that. And I think, I think in respect to the commute, there's three things that are important. One is the time it takes. So my position suggestion on that was ask corporates to let people commute during their working day. Start the commute at nine. If you can work on a train, you're working, right? It's output-based working. Why not? Um, I don't think we'd see a loss of productivity from, from doing that. Um, the second is the cost of commuting. Um, there's going to be, I think, a lot of pressure placed on the on the rail operators in the next few years. There's probably numbers a little bit down on what they had, had based their cost projections on. And so I think there's a need to intervene there anyway. I think there's a strong case to say, to ask the government to give a much greater level of subsidy, if not complete subsidy to public transport. Other countries do a much better job at that than we do in the UK. Um, I think take it to the nth degree, you've got a country like Luxembourg who've made all public transport in the entire country free, which I think is amazing and a a real incentive or, or removal of a disincentive to travel. And the third thing is experience. Like none of us like being stuffed under someone's kind of armpit on a on a tube in the morning, particularly, uh, you know, in the sort of tail end of a pandemic. And 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 I think we've got to do much better to increase the amount of rolling stock and improve things. There's been big big improvements in Wi-Fi connectivity, availability of tables. Go to the continent, you see much better conditions for travelling on our on our trains. So. 
I guess my perspective was if you can unlock all of that, small challenge, but we should be up for it, right? Um, then I think that that puts the office in a much different place relative to some of the trends we were talking about previously um, and could actually unpick everything we've just said. But um, but I think removing those pain points around commuting is, is a huge uh, start and if people, if city governments want people in cities, this isn't just about work, right? It's about p- having people in cities during the daytime. I think we need to start thinking quite radically and creatively around these ideas. You can definitely see that, right? You can definitely see cities thinking, okay, right. What we're going to try and do is attract people to Sheffield, and so part of the offering is actually a few things. We're building a lot more property here. The office space in the city centre is going to be premium and there's going to be transport for people who who live in those places. You could definitely see someone with an ambitious regeneration plan taking those things on. When it comes to the sort of commercial real estate offering, do you think these a rethink going on at that space? That, you know, the some of the operators are thinking about we need to evolve our offering. And, and how do you evolve your offering? Yeah, so I mean, I think you, you've hit on the other side, the other kind of side of the coin on this. So one, one is get rid of the pain points of commuting, and the other is provide an attractive proposition for people when they when they do come in. And I think I think we've all, you know, across the various sectors of the industry, have a have a role to play uh, in this. I mean, certainly, I think get, putting offices in the right place is a good start. Just geographically if people are commuting in then you know putting them near train stations or other accessible transport nodes is definitely going to help with that i think the second is that we need to improve the experience of the micro location and you know the days of having big utilitarian monocultural mono sector cbds are i think are well and truly gone now um you know city of london as an example of this spotted this about 10 years ago and they've now started to introduce you know much more uh, leisure type uses within the city that they wouldn't have dreamt of previously so cbd means central business district apologies yeah using a bit of an, an americanism there but right. I, th- I think in if you look at the big american cities they tend to be much more of this mold like uh, you know just offices in down in the in the kind of central business district same with the um the Australasian uh, cities, um, whereas in Europe we tend to be a little bit more heterogeneous in terms of our our use mix. So I think you look at the West End versus the city as an example of, of 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 you know where things might go. I think it's probably more like the West End in terms of that use mix going forward. So that that's really the job of the local planners, but also property development industry to kind of make that that happen. I think, and and also controlling the amenity that supports your activity is becoming super important now if you can't rely on uh, the local sandwich shop being there because they're going to remark their foot based on new footfall then you've got to own that within your own operation make sure it is there because that's what's going to you know mark you out as competitively differentiated so, so you're moving down from city level to then you know local level and then move inside the building you've got to then think about well what are the things that are going to make people want to stay and it uh, you know, it comes to the earlier discussion we were having, which was, you know, what is what is the office going to be for? Is it, you know, are people going to be sitting at rows of desks still in office? I really hope not. I mean, I really, really hope not. That would be a, a real missed opportunity if we end up doing that. Mm. I, I would hope that they will be supporting the kind of creative, interactive tasks that we're used to. People talk, at, I mean, uh, you know, I don't just focus on offices. I focus on all real estate. And I've been talking about 
changes in retail for a, a long time now. And, and the solutions are all the same, Bruce. I mean, it's you know the retail sector figured out a long time ago you need to provide a positive experience to want to make people come and you know interact with you and, and shop with you. And now we have to do that. But you can't create these amazing interactive experiences through architecture and real estate. You've got to have service provision and people and events and excitement and fun. And, you know, that that in part could come through a building level and a services level provided in, in a building. It could certainly come at the FM level within within the, the building operations. Um, and, it, and it's got to be driven at a cultural level within within businesses, you know, work. I, I I hear people say to me sometimes work shouldn't work isn't about fun. It's about kind of you know getting your head down. Rubbish, absolute rubbish. Work should be fun. I absolutely convinced work should be fun. I think you get the most out of people when it is fun, both from the time they spend in the office and also their likelihood to stay with your business in the longer term. So I would hope, you know, across that tier that we've just talked through of city, locale and office, we can start to inject more fun and value proposition for people to want to make that trip. And if the trip's been made easier through the interventions we've talked about earlier, then, you know, that's quite an exciting future. Tell me this, though. I mean, with the that interesting perspective that you also work in the world of retail, and I guess we could broadly say the story of retail, and I'm going to say something now that's going to be so simplistic and reductive here that by all means, correct me. But the story of the last 20 years of retail is that Some companies have been fighting and resisting the inevitable. And the ones that have thrived are the ones who thought, how can the high street be a complementary offering? Or how can we use technology to make our high street offering more appealing? So, you know, Zara has used technology in a dazzling way to get the freshest, newest stuff out on the high street for you to, to, to have the experience of going in to try it. Or other outlets have said, we're just going to transfer our business online because some of our customers are just about simple, easy transactions. And so, you know, the tragedy of Topshop going is that Topshop had a clientele that were, you know, if there was a Topshop app that was forcing things upon them all the time, you you can see no reason whatsoever why Topshop shouldn't have thrived. And yet, because it sort of held back as this real laggard, ultimately, that they've they've struggled. Now, I wonder if there's a lesson in that for the rest of us when it comes to offices, that, look, if we embrace what is right in front of us now, we can jump that 20 years and we can thrive and we can learn the lessons. Or we can be one of those organisations that says, well, this isn't proven yet and we know what works before and you know what, we're going to give them... We're going to let them work from home on Friday, but come on, we know what works. And we're going to be sort of that laggard top shop style approach where everything superficially seems like it's working. But meanwhile, there'll be firms that start thinking, you know what, we could do things in a more progressive, experimentation, experimental, faster moving way. And they're just going to leapfrog over you know, there's a lot of nonsense and, and, and a lot of sort of supposition in that. But I, ju- I just wondered your take on that and help me correct what was wrong in it. Well, I mean, as a sort of fundamental level, I, I think, you know, when the value is gone, it's gone. It's not the point you choose to realise it's gone. So, uh, so facing up to the challenges that affect any industry or any business, I think, is really important. The ones that don't tend to act quickly, it's usually for one of two reasons or three reasons, probably. Either they don't believe the change is going to happen, so they don't buy it. The second is that they are just not very innovative as businesses and they find change, change difficult. Or the third is that they have significant legacy interests in the past and therefore they can't pivot as easily as a startup or you know someone who, without that legacy business would. I think almost certainly people who front up to change and own it 
tend to do better in the longer run. I think interesting that the stats show, so I'm talking outside of property industry here, but the stats tend to show that the most successful group within any point of industry change are the fast followers. So not the, the real kind of out there pioneers and equally not the, the laggards, but the people who spot someone else and think, mm, that feels like we should do that, and then just really double down and get behind it. Um, so, and look, I think, you know, I mean, it's interesting uh, taking some of the structural changes out of the equation here, you know, and looking at maybe, you know, the general ebb and flow of the property cycle. We've seen some really innovative businesses arise at the bottom of the cycles previously. You know, when, when change has been required, they've said, we want to do something differently and we want to become a different business as a consequence of that. My take on this is, you know, if you think about real estate investment, it tends not to be... Um, an industry where there's been a lot of competitive differentiation. You buy the best site, you know, okay, you either buy it or you don't buy it. You um, invest in a product. The product tends to, let's be honest, no disrespect to any architects, you know, not too dissimilar from the other products. It's certainly not dissimilar enough for the tenants to differentiate that in the rent significantly. And there's very limited other differentiating factors about the product. I think that's about to change in real estate. I think we're going to see a much greater product focus going forward. And within that, you're going to have competitive attributes defined to those products. It might be the architecture. It might be the sustainability criteria. It might be the unique service bundle that attaches to it. It might be the brand of the operator that comes in and operates it for you. Either way, I think we're going to see better and clearer winners and also you know, more clearly demarked losers in this, in this market um, ahead of us. And the winners, as you point to, are going to be the ones who drive forward and align to what you, you the users of real estate want. And I, I think just 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 one final point on that, Bruce. I think there's a difference here in the retail and the office sector. In that the office, the retail sector is is very much B to C, right? You know, you're you you have to engage with consumers in your industry. The in the office sector, up until relatively recently, and and still now actually, it has been intermediated by the corporate tier. We've already discussed the differences in needs and opinions and desires between the corporate tenant and the the end user, the, the kind of the person on the shop floor. I think that real estate investors are going to have to get much more used to satisfying the needs of the end user on the shop floor than they did just the corporate uh, tenant they were negotiating the deal with previously. And, and that will be key to their, their commercial success going forward. So that looks to me like what sort of more consideration about mixed use, about there's going to be a restaurant downstairs, there's going to be access to a gym, there's going to be some retail nearby. Is that right? It's, it's, it's yeah. going to feel like the whole package. All, all the stuff you'd want to do, right? Yeah. When you, you know, I mean, I, I think we've got to realise people don't go to town just, you know, if, if they live out of town, most people do, or the edge of town suburbs. Um, most people don't go to work just to work. You know, you'll go for a beer with your mates afterwards. You'll go for a you know meal with someone. You'll go out to experience some culture, etc. And if all of that's not there near your office, then your office is is, is less well positioned. And if you can have um, you know all of this in very close proximity to your office, then I think you, you're on a winner. Obviously, the techcos figured this out a while ago, and they've realised that this is the way to keep people on campus longer is to provide places where you can come. And it's, it's, it started out of that, as that being a proposition for employees only, and now it's well, now we'll invite the whole public onto our sites and get them involved too. And um, I mean, it just feels obvious, doesn't it? That you know, people like enjoyable stuff, so why not combine that with work? Yeah, there's something you said, which like, for me, sort of really makes this point that you said work should be fun. And I think the really interesting thing, it sort of aligns very much with the Leesman's 
comment, which is offices are going to be uh, half the footprint, but twice the experience. And effectively, I guess there's one thing that we've learned over the last 12 months. The reason why a lot of organizations have, well, almost every organization I've spoken to has witnessed the great resignation is because we've got the tactical blocks of productivity done. We've learned that we can do that from home. And it's the experiential stuff. It's the, it's the fun stuff, if you, know, if you want to be frivolous about it, which is the big differentiator. The, the fun stuff, the experience stuff is what makes people stay loyal to firms. It's the thing that differentiates the workplace culture where they feel, I really like being part of this organization. And that's what offices can deliver more than anything else. But, you know, Leesman talk about the workplace why articulating why someone should make the journey into the city centre or explaining why someone should come in. And if, you know, back to sort of what we said before, if people are just coming in to do video calls, then very quickly that worker is going to say, you know what, I'm going to find another job where I can do those video calls from home. So this experiential part, the fun part that we sort of are embarrassed to admit sometimes, that seems to be like the big differentiator of the firms that are going to get this right. Look, completely. I've I've heard a lot of people in the last year saying, I've found working from home more convenient. I've heard not a single person say, I've found working from home more fun. And and of course, why would you? I mean, so, you know, and, and fun... For most of us humans, still before you know the metaverse kicks off and all that kind of stuff, is is interacting in 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 with other people in a face to face environment, and and I, I completely agree with you. It, it is the glue that binds together companies, and it's the it, it's the essence of culture within companies. Is 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 the fun, um, you know, you, you know, obviously workplaces, you know, corporations, cities, same principle applies. The, the reason why they exist is because we found out as humans, that we do things better together than by ourselves. And that gives us economic advantage. It brings uh, an increase in, I think you've used the word un- unplanned connections, uh, you know, which I think is an essential uh, element of both the office and the city. Um, and I think this is this is going to be an increasingly important part of work going forwards. And if, you know, I, it's not, I think, I think it's not something that a lot of businesses have concentrated on. Certainly big businesses haven't concentrated on this enough in the past and they've let it um, be something that can be done by, um, you know, big personalities within teams. We just rely on having a few big, big personalities to kind of bind the whole thing together. You know, why not have a, why not have a chief fun officer in the future or someone? I mean, I, I mean, I'd put my hand up for that job. <laughs> I wouldn't do a great job of it probably, but, um, but uh, you know, this is the kind of thing that people will want, I think, from their their employers going forward. And they'll be the kind of question that you'll ask when you go for a job interview. You know, how do you create fun in your workplace? Um, and, and that's a you know, it's a great call to action to us in the property industry and also you know, corporate business to uh, to switch up how we're doing things at the moment. I think life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com hi i'm daniel founder of pretty litter 
Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Tell me this. When I'm sort of, I'm, I'm a ridiculously optimistic person. And I often think, well, look, you know, you can imagine a scenario here, 10 years on, where city centres are full of younger workers who loft living, have sort of, you know, you spend your 20s, Living near work, you don't need uh, a lot of space. You've got you've got affordable accommodation in city centres, and young workers seem to be in the evidence are the ones who most prefer being in the office. And then, as people navigate their lives and get into different life stages, they might move out of town to have a bit more space. And actually, all of this seems to be aff- afforded and and. Uh, um, seems to be made possible by the, the changes we're looking at here. So I end up really optimistic that, you know, some cities are going to end up seeing this as a revitalization, the, the rebirth of the city. N- no doubt there will be some cities around the world that sort of resist, hesitate, and, and struggle to do this. But, you know, if you were going to be an optimist, what can, what can you see the next few years bringing, what opportunities can you see it bringing for us? Well, um, yeah, this is a subject that we've been doing quite a lot, lot of thinking about at Cushman's recently is how our cities will evolve over the next 20 years. And I think, I mean, I think, I think you've, you've caught a couple of headlines there, Bruce. I think one is that cities will become more, will become younger. I think they, they will become younger. I think they are already becoming younger, but I think that will, um, accelerate. We were talking before about the kind of things you would come into work to do. Uh, previously, and in the office context, but let's reframe that in the city context. So, you know, everything you've just said is going to apply. You're not going to go, you're not, well, you're not going to go into work to sit at a desk on a Zoom on a Zoom call. You're not going to go into a shop to pick up a piece of stock from a shelf that you've already decided what you want to buy at home. You know, so if if you if you imagine all of these kind of fairly functional, boring tasks are stripped out of our city centres, sorry, should I say, then what's going to be left is all the fun and exciting stuff. And, and not only that, because all the fun and exciting stuff goes in there, other fun and exciting stuff will want to kind of shoot off the network effects that's created through through that. So I think what will happen is our city centres will double down on being very vibrant, active places to be. And a lot of the functional stuff, and, and, and most stuff in our city centres is still very functional, right? It's just the ground floor that is not that at the moment. Um you know, th- th- this this will definitely start to um, to define the city of the future, as, as as I see it. Lots of other trends, you know, that um, that are, are kind of shaping our future cities. You know, I know a subject very close to your heart is sustainability, and you know that beyond the stuff we've been talking about today, I think that's the other huge driver for change going forward. And you know, similar, con- you know, issues there about movement of people and construction of 
you know, high-rise development, et cetera. Um, but, I, you know, the, the analysis we've done, I think I, 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 my, my temptation with all of these things is to see the problems in stuff. And I, I, I must confess to starting this analysis of our future cities by thinking, God, this, there's a lot of challenges out there. I'm very pleased to say that my personal opinion has been changed by the analysis we've done to the extent where I can now see how particularly technology will unlock a lot of these challenges for us as a society in the same way it has in the past, actually. Um, and, and I'm a big believer now that what we'll see ahead is a, a city that's more human-centric, that um, offers greater choice to its inhabitants, uh, wastes less of our time, creates less carbon and pollution. And I think there's a real positive future ahead of us in that regard. If anyone wants to read more of your stuff, I, I, I'll post a couple of the blog posts in the comments below. But like the city analysis, are you putting stuff out related to that or where could they hear more of some of these thinking? Thanks very much for the opportunity for, for a plug there, Bruce. So we, we're <laughs> launching a, a campaign called The Future of Cities at the end of this month. Uh, it'll be on our corporate website uh, which is www.cushmanwakefield.co.uk. Equally, if you want to pick up on some of the stuff that we've been talking about today, uh, futures.cushmanwakefield.co.uk is my sort of bit of that site where me and a few weird and wonderfuls kind of shoot the breeze on, on some interesting topics like this. Do connect on that. People will see them if they go to the notes on their podcast app. You'll, you'll see both of those are right at the very top there. Wonderful. A really stimulating discussion. I find this... So fascinating. And I guess, you know, from your perspective, you're helping owners, property owners navigate these complexities. And, you know, it's such a vital time for you being looked at for, for advice. But there's no doubt to, in my mind that these changes are happening, whether we opt into them or not. You know, we can, we can elect to turn our back on these or to ignore them or pretend that somehow we can return to 2019. But the changes are upon us. And, it's a big opportunity for anyone who embraces them, it seems to me. Yeah, uh, look, I mean, I think what has really kind of given me a lot of hope for the world generally is, is is actually how much our clients do see it as their obligation to make these changes, uh, and not just for commercial gain, but also for doing the right thing. And I haven't felt a sense of that in the property industry uh, at the level it is now in my entire working career. And I think that you know, whether your your listeners are from the property industry or from outside it, I think that should give them a lot of confidence about the future and where we're going. Wonderful. Brilliant chat. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bruce. Thank you, Richard. Look, I mean, I find this really fascinating. For, for me, Michael Gove in the UK has got the responsibility for sort of dealing with the, the shortage of homes. And I, I can see that a visionary politician might say, you know what we're going to do? We're going to you know, we're going to set about to revitalise cities. We're going to build loads of affordable accommodation right in the centre of Sheffield and attract businesses to come there. You know, and suddenly you've got these... Uh, anyway, that's what I can see. I can see huge opportunities from that. Whether it happened or not, I don't know. It, it strikes me that we could look back at this and see it was like a, a really inspiring moment of re-energisation. Thank you so much for listening. I've been, I've been Bruce Daisley. Always welcome people getting in touch on LinkedIn or on Twitter. So feel free to, to get in touch and I'll speak to you next time. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.